0: another episode of pacific underground your show about the asian american and pacific islander experience
1: good morning i'm jake Ramos,
0: and i'm tabitha teo
1: and on this episode we bring you an um an interview we have with uh some artists that are showing at the portland chinatown museum
0: their current art exhibition is called descendant threads and it's a group show featuring three Asian-American female artists working and living in and around Portland. Jake, did you see the show?
1: Yes, I was actually there at the opening reception for the show with you and producer Jenna um, several weeks ago on First Thursday, and I thought it was uh, really good. There was a good crowd there, and uh, it was really neat to see the difference in... um, Roberta and Lynn and Ellen's work, and um, yeah, there was all. Like, I mean, they were all very, really strong pieces. And the Vincent Chin Shrine was really powerful for me because I was really young when when that incident happened, and it was very sort of um, sort of early formation to me because I hadn't really puzzled out what it meant to be Asian American yet. But I remember hearing about it and. Um, uh, Several of Roberta's pieces were really powerful, too. I loved the piece with the the cue cut off at of the cleaver and um, several other ones. And uh, I really liked Lynn's shrine with the family shrine in the video as well. But I didn't get to, um, because there were so many people in attendance, which was a good problem to have, I didn't get to hear the audio of her um, uh, multimedia presentations. So, but overall, it was really good.
0: I thought it was a great show, too. Uh, very thoughtful. Um, I thought all the artists put a lot of thought and um, and time into their pieces. Uh, I also heard it was the first group show um, in Portland featuring Asian American women. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. But
1: uh, if so, it's definitely long overdue. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, considering Asian Americans are the largest uh, minority group in Portland, I believe. Are they? Maybe not. One of the largest. And... Um, The show was also curated by another longtime Portland Asian-American artist and curator, Horatio Law, who I met and um, chatted with for the first time at the reception.
0: I uh, had the pleasure of sitting down with two of the artists, uh, Roberta Wong and Lynn Yarn, uh, to talk about their show and their uh, work currently on exhibition. Oh, great.
1: Let's uh, listen to that.
0: Let's first introduce ourselves. I am Tabitha Teo and I am here with two artists who have work at the Portland Chinatown Museum right now. Uh, Can you please introduce yourselves?
2: My name is Roberta Wong. I'm a visual artist doing conceptual and installation art.
0: And my name is Laniard. These two artists have work up right now at the Portland Chinatown Museum called Descendant Threads and it is up through November 11th. Unfortunately we are not joined by one of the artists Ellen George but we are joined by Lynn Yarn and Roberta Wong. So thanks for being here.
3: Thanks for having us. Uh,
0: what kind of statement or uh, message are you trying to make with your art?
3: Let's see, I think early on in the process, I was thinking more about feeling. I kind of wanted a feeling of, I don't know, walking into like a a warm, cozy room, but something kind of mysterious, but something joyful and um, grateful or thankful, I think were the feelings I was going for. All of the pictures that are inside of the altar are family photos or kind of places that are talked about in... um, in the interviews that I collected. And so I wanted a feeling of kind of like a warmth when you look at the photos or kind of wondering more about them and like feeling um, like myth and reverence.
2: So my work is a collection of work that I've done since 1985. And usually uh, they're focused on themes of injustice or in, and race and um, sometimes gender. And uh, the earliest piece I have there was produced in 1985. It's called All Orientals Look Alike. And it's uh, a statement about again, stereotypes and using or asking the viewer to use the title to frame the work. We're looking at uh, a funerary setting of four individual portraits of different ethnic Asians, and from them, a composite image of all their features that represents the myth of who we're supposed to look like. So with some humor, as well as with some solemnness, um, I want the audience to contemplate uh, the impact of that statement and the reality of, of the loss Uh, imposed by stereotypes and so it's set in a funerary setting with candles and offerings um, on the table and uh, a a memory of our home and our own little altar that we would have displayed a photograph of our grandfather and um, those occasions you know again pouring him a little cup of whiskey and (laughs) offering chicken and rice Mm -hmm. but uh, as part of the exhibit none of the food is there but because of the environment it's in they don't allow food in a museum setting but uh, uh, that's the earliest piece and unfortunately it's still relevant and we still have to address those issues Um, the most recent piece I produced was a piece that I've carried around in my head for a while. It's uh, in memory of Vincent Chin, who was a victim of racial violence. And um, it's been probably a generation ago where uh, his story was told, and it's time for new generations to learn his story and uh, be reminded uh, of, again, the challenges that we have as a race to to deal with um, just blind prejudice.
0: Yeah, I have to say that I've seen the exhibit um, and I think all uh, both of yours and Ellen's works are just so powerful in what they say. Um, and, I, and Roberta, I didn't know that your All Randalls Look Alike piece was. A little over thirty years old now. <laughs> um, that's really cool.
2: The first time it was displayed at the Chinese uh, Benevolent Association Hall, where you have the traditional photographs of past presidents lined up against the wall, and this installation was just below that. So I wasn't quite sure how the Chinese community would respond to it, you know, um, But they actually were very positive about it and uh, also could understand the the message um, that it conveyed and uh, didn't take offense to it, although I've heard other interpretations of the image uh, or of the piece being one of of violence because the central image is composite of strips of photographs of the photographs that are interwoven, but someone mistook it to be uh, cut uh, like with the dagger through the central uh, image. So they thought someone had, you know, again, inflicted violence on the center image as opposed to Mm. my, my thought of interweaving the four individual People to shatter the stereotype. Mm-hmm. So it's it's always interesting to me um, how people can interpret information, and and my interest is not to control that response, but just to embrace that humanity that people feel about their subjects, because it's everyone's feelings are valid, and you you have to. Um, have respect for that even though you may not agree with that thought but um but you have to step back and kind of think where that's coming from Mm -hmm.
0: what do you think um you want people to take away from your work i did
3: think a lot about this but I think I wanted to commit to making a work for myself, but it sounds a little bit selfish, but I Mm -hmm. think, you know, when you make something, like, Roberta, you're saying, like, um, everyone's feelings, everyone will get something different from a piece, Mm -hmm. and those feelings are all valid, and so I felt like if I tried to do something authentic and genuine to myself, that um, maybe it might, like, resonate with someone else. As a, I'm a high school teacher during the day, and last year, um, when I first started kind of the work that led up to this project. I was co-teaching an ethnic studies class and and it was a lot of work, um, emotionally <laughs> yeah. especially, like in a classroom of, it started with 60 kids um, of varying degrees, oh, varying degrees of caring about race and racism in our country or in general. So it was really exhausting kind of always thinking about making stuff for others or, and I mean, we teach for our own selves and like happiness also, but, um, I think at the end of the day, I wanted to go home and work on something for myself as like a, a healing project. Um,
2: I think you succeeded too. I think you had a lot of people, uh, look at the images and share their own memories of that time. And, uh, I think uh reflection is an important part of that process of healing, so it's 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 nice that the people have time to spend in there as long as they choose and and just in even multiple times and and get different um details from that experience and you. you're welcome, and in the same way my my work i I try to capture a sense of reality and truth, and I believe both those elements are multifaceted, that you only can see a part of something uh, from one perspective, and it's when you comprehend more um, about that circumstance or uh, experience you... Can hopefully gain another facet of that of information from that uh, piece, and um, and so I consider each piece a threshold of reality, and then my my expectation is that the audience will walk through that with me, as opposed to stand on the outside and look in. That. Um, as as a piece of art, as an installation piece um my expectation is um that it 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 shares a part of my life, my perspective without words that often um, some of these experiences you can't there are no words to express you know what you've gone through and uh only the, by, I can't say the correct word, um, visceral <laughs> word, visceral? <laughs> visceral experience of mm. of walking through or walking that path, um, can you un- understand and comprehend someone else's experience? Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Actually, Roberta, I wanted to ask you about the piece with the hair. Mm-hmm. Like, how you came up with that, or, like, what were your experiences that Again, led
2: to that? Um, that piece is called All American, and it deals with hyphenated Americans. Uh, so regardless of what culture you're coming from, to be American, you have to usually leave something behind. And sometimes it's overt, like the cutting of your hair in queue, uh, or sometimes it's invisible that you don't see that the loss that someone has gone through to be here and to uh, be a part of this culture, and uh, so the it it I don't have a particular process uh, that I utilize for these pieces, but it it's it comes to me visually again. I as a conceptual artist, I. My studio, I carry around in my head. I don't have a physical space where I work. Mm -hmm. And I only execute them when I have an opportunity to show it. And uh, so, again, being Chinese-American, being from a family of immigrants, you know, these experiences are always on your mind. And uh, so, again, the... The vis- the piece is a simple um, piece. I grew up in a kitchen, so there's an element of that that's in the piece. It's I use a stainless steel table with a round wooden chopping block uh, and a heavy Chinese cleaver embedded into the block. And from that, the edge of that blade is my hair, uh, my braid, a cue that represents. Um, maybe Chinese Americans from the early 18th, 19th century where that was part of their image to have their cue attached. Um, but to assimilate in America, most of the men had cut theirs off.
0: Some of them had their cues forcibly cut off when there was mm-hmm. such anti-Chinese immigration sentiment in
2: America. That's true. They didn't often have a choice. Mm -hmm. So I think about, you know, what they had to go through and what they experienced. And and in many ways, today's immigrants, you know, go through that same process psychologically as well as physically and mentally. And, you know, we may not see what they had to sacrifice, but... You know they're in pain. You know there's a pain that goes with that uh, transition. So um, thank you for um, again I'm just underst- I don't know if you can like, understanding or or appreciating that piece. Oh, yeah I really appreciate it. I mm-hmm. feel
3: when people first see it, it's very striking. Yeah, like it's will stop.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it's not an easy image to look at, uh I don't think. I mean to have a bodily part on a chopping block. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And unfortunately we have a, a, a recent image to consider with uh Mr Kosagi. Is mm. it but uh oh,
0: the journalist that yes. died in Saudi Arabia. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh but um, again, it, it, in terms of Chinese um, history, eye for an eye, tooth mm-hmm. you know. The, mm-hmm. I mean, you see images, you know, of people losing parts mm-hmm. of their body because if they've had a, they've executed a crime, so their mm-hmm. hand comes off, oh, you yeah, know, yeah. things like that.
0: Do any of you think of yourself as hyphenated Americans? Because like. Even though my ethnicity is Chinese, I am strangely must, much more comfortable thinking of myself as as Asian American than Chinese American. And it could be a generational thing, but I'm curious how how do you all think of yourself? Uh
3: because I'm Chinese and Japanese American, I think Asian American just easier to say and so maybe I I use that more I also think that um, maybe like the experience of like internment camp is very like part of um, our family's experience or like the exclusion acts and how um, how my family lived in America or like their path to to me (laughs) Um, so I I think I do say Asian American more
2: I think to to claim yourself as Asian American is more inclusive it, and it it speaks to the to the fact that um we're not seen as individuals but mm. um and and also it's it's a step away from the romanticism perhaps of Chinese culture, Japanese culture, or, um, or you know Filipino or Vietnamese and because there is a, set, a an element of romanticism that people look at these cultures, mm-hmm. and um, and I think so. Asian American being more modern term that you're removing yourself from that biased again, that expectation of who you are based on your ethnicity, and um, so I th- I think. Uh, I identify as Asian American, but I know I'm Chinese, uh, I- you know, in my heritage. And so it's it's a question of who you're relating to, if you're relating to family versus, you know, a community. And having attended uh, just recently the Apanos Eastside, East Portland Arts and Literary mm-hmm. Festival, you know, those those definitions aren't necessarily defined. You're in a group of, of fellow Asians and some are maybe Chinese, some are Japanese, some are Filipino and Vietnamese and, and, but there's a connectedness that we have and we share by being identified as Asian American.
0: Mm. This question just occurred to me and I guess it's kind of a silly fluff question. How do you store your work when it's not on display because Lynn, your altarpiece, piece it's like a tiny room, so just take up your living room when it's oh, not on my display. Goodness.
3: my parents were really nice. I built it with my dad, which was probably like the best part of doing the project, mm-hmm. just getting to hang out and like talk shop and um but as we were kind of building it bit by bit, he was like, "Oh, this is gonna be in the garage for a while, huh <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, so I think we'll, when I dismantle it, I need to figure out a plan because it, it's going to show again in January. Mm. Um, so I have to store it somewhere till January, <laughs> but it'll be in different pieces.
2: Mm. Where do you plan to show it? Um,
3: it'll be showing at Open Signal. Oh, okay, great. So great. Oh, cool. Open Signal supported me with a fellowship this summer, which is how I put most of it. And then the kind of phase two project is I'm developing some curriculum at school, mm. kind of related. So I'm hoping to project um, the work of my students. I haven't decided which class. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of alongside it and
0: with it in a room. Uh, how long will it uh, how long will it be up at <laughs> Open Signal? Uh,
3: mid January through mid February. I think cool. it goes up on the
0: fifteenth. Great,
2: great. Cool.
0: Uh, Roberta, how do you yeah store your um, work?
2: They live in little boxes, <laughs> basically. <laughs> I have uh, my boxes of books that I keep in one in the garage, basically, and they come out. But they're identified by color, so it makes it easy for me to uh, to assemble them. Based on their identification, and uh, these days plastic boxes are great for my other installations where I can actually see what's inside, <laughs> and and not get them mixed up. But yeah, that's a convenient way to st- to uh, store these items. Mm-hmm. They don't see the light of day very frequently, so um, it's good to keep them where they're dust free and you know out of the light and mm-hmm. keep it for a longer term that way. Uh,
0: um, So I had the privilege of helping you set up your uh, Chinks piece, which, um, to describe it, it's uh, a wall of books set in a semicircle around a desk and a wall map. Um, And uh, I had the privilege of helping you set up the wall of books but then there was a part where you came over and uh, rearranged my books and I felt like, oh, <laughs> I messed up. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Not at all. I, again, I appreciate your help. And uh, the challenge always with that piece is to make sure you have a good foundation because if if it's not tended to, uh, to make sure it's secure, you can easily be unstable and could possibly fall over on top of someone. So to prevent that, I just had to make sure that I had a secure base for the piece. And uh, I also, at the time, I was... um, I usually put the books in a color order, and in the past I've had red, white, and blue separated, and I wasn't sure if I was going to keep the same sequence of colors. So after the fact, After we got to the level that you had helped me with, I decided I was going to revert back to the previous color order. So, in in some ways, it was my uh, undecidedness about um, that issue. But uh, if that's
0: just a polite way of saying you screwed up, no, not (laughs) at at all.
2: No, not at all. And uh, actually. The the layer the books are comprised of uh, encyclopedias. The first layer being our own family set of encyclopedias, and I've frequented the Goodwill bins uh, <laughs> to collect the the multitude of encyclopedias that represent the multitude of families that have come to America to seek a world class education. But as I build the Wall, I create chinks in the wall. And the piece is titled Chinks, um, number three. And uh, it was given that title to underscore not only the derogatory term that's been applied to Chinese Americans, but also to highlight the voids that exist in our education system, um, void of any multicultural reference or Cultures um, when I was going to school. And um, I'm a student of the 60s, 70s, and so uh, I think multiculturalism didn't really come into play until maybe the 80s, mm-hmm. where it started being maybe part of the curriculum being considered as...
0: I was a student like in the 90s and early aughts, and I feel like I still had a pretty lacking of multi-ethnic education like outside of african-american history um yeah i feel like i there was a lot of asian-american history that i didn't learn about that i had to seek out on my own
3: mm-hmm. it's still yeah it's N- still mm-hmm. an
0: issue well, so as a yeah, high school yeah. teacher i hope you're <laughs> yeah
2: well but, at the top layer of the the wall, though, are more current um, books that historians have tried to fill the voids with. So there's a reference in, and even top layers that you can kind of finger through if you're curious to to see some of the material there. So but it's also an
0: interactive piece.
2: It can be yes, very like ginger, yeah. <laughs> and then behind the t- wall is a, a an old school map. Uh, as I recall my memory of being a student, they never talked about China because China was a communist country. So here I'd always wait for them to maybe point to China or talk about China, and that oh. was never the case for for my classroom. Um, and then also behind the student desk, or on top of the student desk behind the wall, are the stereotypical books that we have been come to be known by with books about cowboys and indians and christopher columbus and uh the catholic bible or not catholic the catholic book of history so it's it's again a skewed history mm-hmm. as well but um in the desk and on the kind of on the seat there's references to books you kind of kind of hide and Take for yourself, you know, that you read for yourself, but black like me, and um, books about protests, but Mm -hmm. um, but just to again maybe show some intent on this part of the student to to educate Mm themselves. So that's uh, a piece that it took maybe three three renditions to. To actually materialize this particular piece called
0: Chinks Three, right? Mm.
2: I had thought of other forms that it could be presented, but this is the only one that I've actually executed. Mm. So that's that piece.
0: (laughs) I sort of hate this question because it's very cliched when talking to artists. But what inspires you, or where do you get your ideas from?
3: Um, my one was a lot about being inspired. Um, part of the piece is kind of spliced together interviews. It's about an hour in total, which is maybe a little bit long for a a piece, but it's 10 different elders from Chinatown and Japantown, or who frequent in the area in their lifetime. Um, I was really inspired by their stories. I was inspired by kind of learning more about my own family history, um, I also got really inspired like working with so many different people like meeting Roberta and mm-hmm. Ellen and um, getting to know Horatio more um, I got to work with the Legacy Center a little bit, the Nikkei Legacy Center and um, work with some of the photos and collections from Jackie at the Chinatown Museum um, and all the people at Open Signal are, are really fantastic and generous and you know are trying to support artists and I think that part really inspired me. And so I think as I was making stuff, even though I said I you know, I was trying to focus on a healing project, um, I wanted, I don't know, um, inspiration from others to be very present in the work.
2: Uh, I, it's hard to... Um, I can say that what inspired me was my last year going to PSU. I had started knowing that I wanted to be an artist, so straight out of high school, I took all my classes and sequences and all those things, but I could never get through art history. So eventually I took a break, and um, it was when I returned, I came back and I took a course um, uh, by Mel Katz, who is a professor there, and he offered a class called Current Concerns, and that introduced me. I was a sculpture major and that's what I majored in. Uh, so I, I was exploring conceptual art, which was outside of my realm. And um, there were books that we could peruse and look through. And um, Chris Burden was an artist that I responded to. And it, what he, what I interpret him trying to do, at least in that phase of his life, was to address complacency in our society and he had created works that would force people to respond or to react to his presence and what one example was he had a gallery exhibit and you walk in the space is void of anything so but up above the door entrance he built a platform that he sat upon and shouted obscenities to people <laughs> to literally drive them out of the space and that was his uh, again one of his pe- pieces and then a second piece he had locked himself into a school locker and he had a bottle of uh, and a tube that he can urinate into that was outside mm-hmm. the door of the of the locker <laughs> <laughs> and um And again, his actions had provoked administration to get a blowtorch (laughs) and get him out of there. And so I think he was successful in, in again, provoking people's behavior. But the one piece uh, specific to Portland was uh, was going to be uh, exhibited at the Portland Center for Visual Arts, PCVA. His piece involved basically two objects, an empty chair, and opposite that chair was a loaded revolver. Hmm. And the revolver was set on a timer so you didn't know when it was gonna go off. (laughs) A person would have to sign a waiver if they were gonna sit down in that chair. And so again, the anticipation of facing a life and death situation (laughs) was what he was offering again wow. to his audience and viewer but after a lot of deliberation the board chose not to put mm-hmm. themselves
0: exhibit that piece
2: at at, at a risk and so but the concept of the piece is what's powerful mm-hmm. the fact that it wasn't executed was beside the point you know he again offered an exhibit that they Had to reject, Mm -hmm. and so again, shaking the art world again (laughs) up. (laughs) Sounds like your
0: your uh, professor was quite the provocateur. Well,
2: it wasn't his work; it was the work of Chris Burden. Oh, okay, okay. And again, and I appreciated what his work was uh, trying to do to address complacency and um, provoke human response but i chose not to do it in that form i felt his work was more egotistical and masochistic that i chose not to that i kind of just disdain <laughs> disdain that but uh so i just but i felt what he was doing was powerful and so i tried to find a way to do that in a in a more humane way and so that's kind of the basis of most of my pieces even as Diverse as they are in terms of what they address and what form they take, I'm hoping that it will affect the viewers in the same way. That I I do believe change happens internal to be permanent and to have you know an impact on one's life. It has to be internal change. You know, you you can make physical um, you change your routine or something like that, but when you're impacted physically and it's you, you can't help but walk away with with that feeling, and um you can't lose that feeling when you experience something that's um, affects you in a certain way mentally or physically, you carry it with you and so and that was the intent of actual conceptual art as well. it was sort of antithesis of the commercial commerciality of work of artwork and that and the belief that if you understand something you it's yours you can own it you can share it it's it's free Mm -hmm. you know if you have the capacity to understand something and Mm. uh, there's no um, no price tag you know really
0: so uh, I noticed on the show flyer that This is the first group show by Asian-American women artists. Um, And I know the curator is Horatio Law. I'm curious, like, how did this process get started? Um, How long was the, like, development process? Who contacted who first? Who came up with the idea? Uh,
2: Basically, with the museum opening uh Jackie uh had a- invited Horatio to curate an exhibit and um when I asked Horatio ab- about his process he was res- relating the fact that as he was raised by uh, his mother uh, as a single parent and uh, he has holds a lot of reverence for her uh, hard work and ability to take care of all his, him and his siblings, and and so he wanted to, again, honor his mother as well by honoring Asian American women artists and uh, the fact that in Chinese society, women are often not given the recognition or... I don't know what the, it's like another good word, but right. they're not acknowledged, yeah, for what they the labor that they go through, and and so it was his w- way of again honoring his mother, and um, and in the f- the fact that the museum is devoted to promoting Asian American artists, uh, the fact that we're three women artists makes that statement. Uh, Correct and true. There have been Asian. There are other Asian women who have exhibited as artists, and Ellen herself is represented by PDX Gallery. Um, but they're not shown in that context because the nature of the space doesn't define it that way. Define define the artist that way, necessarily. Uh, when uh, I was. Uh, at the Interstate Fire Cultural Center, uh, and I got to work with different artists, and and the gallery there at IFCC was to promote ethnic artists, and um, so artists who chose to to exhibit with us accepted that fact that they're they're wanting to be presented in that context, whereas there are some artists who are artists of color who choose not to be presented as an artist of color. They want to be an artist accepted as an artist first and foremost, and that uh, their ethnic background should not have any uh, impact on that.
3: This is actually the first show, or first thing that I've shown um, where like, heritage or race is part of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, before that it was all things where um, it wasn't visually noticeable that like you could there wasn't a reference yeah, yeah it wasn't a, a reference mm-hmm. um, I think I thought a lot especially when you we were talking about the chinks project I thought a lot about like who gets to represent or who's empowered um, to represent what like opportunities provide themselves for representation um, and I think more lately the project that led up to this one um, was i was trying to remix um, national geographic magazines so i got this big stack from school that were all 50s geographic ones mm-hmm. and i cut out all the asian people i could find <laughs> and then remix them into gods oh. um, as like a project um so that was kind of the precursor to this project mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. instead of being represented by others and always being seen as others like i don't know representing and like I get to put my grandma's face everywhere (laughs) in a gallery's face.
0: That's cool. Did you all know each other before Horatio contacted you Uh, all or know of each other?
2: uh, This is the first time I've met Lynn, but actually Lynn's father and I are schoolmates. We went to high school together, and so it's a pleasure to meet Lynn. She's a delightful person, and uh, I look forward to seeing more of her artwork.
3: Thanks. I was really excited to meet these two. We had like a coffee, and originally there was one more artist, Valerie Otani, who I knew because I know her family from growing up. Um, but I just I felt really special to be at a table of like all these cool <laughs> artists who were doing it and um,
0: being fantastic. So. <laughs> Are you
3: an artist, though? Uh,
0: yes. Cool. Um, I've never exactly publicly exhibited my art, but Mm -hmm. I really like textile art. So I do a lot of sewing, a lot of cross-stitching. Um, I'm actually working on this one cross-stitch right now of Minori Yasui. And it sort of inspired me to do this series of uh, of cross-stitches of, um, of photographs of Asian American activists. Um...
2: I love
0: it. I'm just right now doing it for myself, and I don't know if I'll ever exhibit it. And also, at the same time, I feel like I am not necessarily doing anything quote-unquote new with just doing a straight cross-stitch translation of these photographs. Um, Because I just use this uh, pattern-generating website to just run the, the... the photograph through, and it just generates um, a cross-stitch pattern.
3: I've never seen someone do that before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like it's just such a a straight translation from photograph to cross-stitch patterns, like, I don't know what new or different I'm trying to say, or... I love it, like, (laughs) as an action, it's
3: like a meditation on that person Mm -hmm. and what that means,
0: Yeah, it... I do find cross-stitching very meditative. Um and um has certainly inspired me to like research about these people's lives and um and I feel like in a way all everything you do is kind of selfish and so I've also tried to think like what about their work like how I could apply it to my life or how I could use it to sort of like inspire and drive my life so uh that that's the kind of artwork that I'm working on mm-hmm. right now. It's cool.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Well, the one thing that I would add to that conversation is that I believe we're all original. No one can do what you do. And so I I give you more power to do it. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. No one can see something the way you visualize it. And so, you know, it it's something... I think that if we adhere to our own vision, uh, it'll have more strength. Mm -hmm. You won't be compromising yourself in that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you all very much. And once again... (laughs) Mm -hmm. No problem, thanks for being here. And once again, that show will be up at the Portland Chinatown Museum in downtown Portland till November 11th.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Roberta and Lynn. That was a great conversation. What was um, a new uh, your favorite thing about speaking with Roberta and Lynn? Anything new that you learned?
0: Um, at the end, um, this caught me a little off guard, but uh, Lynn asked if I was an artist, and it talked about what I was working on at the moment, and um, they gave me some really nice uh, words of encouragement, and also um, that I learned that, like, inspiration can really come from anywhere. Maybe I'll have an exhibition someday. Yeah, that would be great. Like a
1: Yayoi Kasama infinity room with an infinity of chihuahuas. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but yeah, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Um, we also have a special segment that we're uh, sharing this week, um, a vox VoxBop from this event that the Pacific Underground Collective got to table at a couple weeks ago.
0: Producers Jenna, Kat, and I got to table at the second annual East Portland Arts and Literary Festival, or EPALF, and it was put on by Apano. I saw you there at the festival several times. Uh, you were too busy to sit at our table. What were you doing for EPALF?
1: Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry, I was running around the whole time. Um, but I, you got to admit the name EPALF—it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, it does.
1: <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was lucky to be the um, the main stage curator this year for EPALF and last year. Oh, cool! What'd you do for them? So, as main stage curator, I booked all the uh, main stage performances and. Poetry readings, uh, stand-up comedy shows, uh, opening panel, and the two dance performances, and um, uh, hosted several of those, but mostly got everybody lined up, and um, it was a good performance. Uh, Did you get to catch any of the performances this year, or were you tabling the whole time?
0: I went to the opening on Friday, and I saw um, one of the performances and listened to one of the talks that was uh, there on Friday. But uh, I wanted to get ready to table on Saturday, so I left the reception early on Friday. Uh, But sadly, on Saturday, I was at the table all day because someone was too busy doing ePAL stuff. (laughs) And um, so I didn't get to see any of the workshops, unfortunately, or any of the performances. Um, I got to see the poetry reading, um, and that was because that was moved out tabling area, which I appreciated. Um, but it was nice to listen to the poetry. That's great. The festival theme of mental health was very interesting to me. How was that theme decided on? Uh, that
1: came from ApaNo's Ars Media collective that organized the the EPALF. Um, the general group uh, narrowed down the. The festival theme out of several different choices, and we thought since it's very relatable to many different parts of the community, it was um, something that has a stigma about being talked about. So, we thought, given the state of the world, it's um, you know good to kind of consider mental health and 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 talk about these things as a community.
0: Uh, while we were at ePalF, we brought a field recorder along with us and ask folks that stopped by our table about their experiences with mental health. Some people had some really interesting stories to share. Uh, Let's take a listen to those. Do you have a mental health story or experience or an opinion about the mental health system? I think I've always struggled with my mental health, and I think that stems a lot from the expectations that I've not only put on myself, but I've also felt from society kind of to be. I've been reflecting on this a lot. The idea of being like a perfect Asian. Um, I kind of grew up with that and internalized that in a lot of ways. And so I think even now, it's taking me this long to finally start coming to terms with that and to start trying to incorporate and internalize more self-care into my daily life, Um, and so we really, I think we really neglect in the Asian American community a lot of folks who are struggling, and I think it's time that we recognize these things and we really put a lot of effort into
4: um, helping folks who are struggling.
5: I think I
1: have a lot of loved ones who don't get the help they need and resources resources they need to help them with their mental health, and I think the system that we live under treats mental health very poorly and not as a necessity. Um, the mental health care that is given to people is uh, pretty low quality unless you have like the money and the means to afford something better. And Mental health can be really crippling and I think there needs to be some better resources and funding and attention and care for mental health and people suffering from.
4: I can only talk from personal experience, you know, I'm someone who gets my health care from my employer, so I feel very privileged in that sense. But I also feel like, I mean, working within that healthcare plan, it's just tough. It's tough to know who to like trust in terms of like, is this person going to be right for me? You know, like, do they have a lens that is specific to like POC for people who do social justice work for people who have certain needs and it's just like where do you go you know and um, I feel lucky enough that there are groups that try to cultivate those lists and I know a number of groups in Portland who really try hard to be like this person if you need therapy like they would be someone who'd support you and stuff so I've been trying to navigate that but it's difficult it's it's challenging in a sense that you get discouraged easily when like, there's just so many obstacles, and uh, taking that first step is, is really hard.
6: Well, when I was 20 years old, I unexpectedly got pregnant while I was in college. And that experience of getting unintentionally pregnant with a partner that I didn't really want to go forward with, um, I decided to terminate a pregnancy when I was really young. And that experience put me in a very downward spiral in my life, I would say. And because of that experience, and it was also a very secretive experience, I was very alone, it was a very dark time. Uh, I can count on one hand the people that knew my experience, and so I was very alone with nowhere to turn, and I decided like after a year of crying and just deep depression um, for my decisions, uh, I decided to get some counseling and uh, that was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life in terms of trying to get actively, trying to get mentally, um, I don't know if the word is healthy, but um, just trying to deal with my issues in a really healthy way. And I really support and advocate for those who are dealing with some of these really big things in your life, whether it's parents or situations or just feeling naturally down and depressed, to talk to someone and and get that counseling support. Because for me, I would not be in a space right now if I didn't get that support over several years of just talking to someone. And I, what I did is actually dream therapy, which was really helpful because I have very vivid dreams and my counselor took those dreams and help me navigate my internal issues through my dreams.
5: The first time that I ever felt like I could tell my mom that I had sought counseling was after my dad passed. Um, Pretty tragically and pretty quickly. Her first reaction was, oh my God, what is wrong with you, are you okay? Like, there was something seriously wrong with me. I was able to take a breath and say, You know, I think that mental health should be treated like physical health. We should really take preventative measures and do check-ins and check-ups before something serious happens and we end up in a crisis or emergency room. And also, we all just went through this huge trauma together. My dad passed, your husband passed, and we're dealing with your cancer as well. So we're just spinning in all kinds of ways. And this is one other way that I can get help to support me and us through navigating all of these challenges.
1: Thank you to everybody that contributed to that Vox Pop.
0: I had a great time at EPALF and would love to go again next year, um, either as a tabler or maybe as an attendee.
1: Yeah, hope you can catch one of the workshops. Those were really great this year. Last year, we only had one workshop, and this year we were able to put on six of them and reach many people in the community.
0: Yeah, there was a sewing workshop that I was really interested about, but I was at the table.
1: (laughs) Next, we'll bring you a segment we haven't done in a while, um, talking about API events happening around Portland.
0: There are always so many interesting things happening around Portland and it's important to show support for the API community here in Portland.
1: So here's a short list of some things that are happening around town over the next couple weeks.
0: This evening at 6pm at Apano at 2788 Southeast 82nd Avenue, they're having a ballot party. Bring your ballot and fill it out in a fun atmosphere. And the event is free
1: to do that I haven't filled my ballot out yet <gasps> shame I know I know
0: I did it at ePal.
1: and also on the next night Saturday the 3rd DJ Anjali and the incredible kid will be spinning a combination of Latin American Indian pop music at their Tropital show at the Goodfoot uh, which is at 2845 Southeast Stark there will be an $8 cover for anybody age 21 and over
0: Wednesday, November 14th, there will be a screening of the documentary, The Numbers, about the East Portland neighborhood called The Numbers. It'll be at Canton Grill at 2610 Southeast 82nd Avenue at 6 p.m. After the screening, there will be a Q&A with the filmmakers Sika Stanton and Donovan Smith. There will also be a live performance by Manny Lopez. The event is free.
1: And then on November 22nd, which is a Tuesday, the Lansu Chinese Gardens at 239 Northwest Everett Street are having a community free day and food drive. So please, if you bring a non-perishable food item, uh, you can get free admission to the gardens, which is normally kind of expensive. Uh, And donations go to the Oregon Food Bank in honor of Thanksgiving and folks who don't have enough,
0: I guess. And Giving Tuesday. Yeah. Thanks for listening, folks. This has been another episode of Pacific Underground.
1: And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram if you want to keep up with the latest Pacific Underground news.
0: Thank you to Kaylee for the studio space and time. Tune in the day after Thanksgiving for our next episode. Until then, take care.